0: Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. How can you think differently every day? How can you create environments of peace? How do you define peace? These are just a few deep questions that can jumpstart conversations, courtesy of today's guest, Diana Kataya. Who sees the world through a lens of curiosity and change? Diana founded Coaching Peace in 2012 to create positive and safe cultures that empower its members to lead with empathy and understanding. In this conversation, we discuss curiosity's role in changing systems, connecting to other people's joy, and how the lessons of a life in sports translate into the business world. Diana shares stories from her time playing and coaching sports, how to adjust to adversity, why we need to listen to our bodies, and the balance between drive and peace. If you are driven to succeed at all costs and want to find a new, healthier way, then Diana has some insights for you. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at GWTW.co 730. One of the questions that I saw somewhere on your website that got me really excited was the questions that best jumpstart conversations. Mm -hmm. And questions are an obsession for me. Like I am obsessed with them. Yeah. I always think about things that not only jumpstart conversations, but are like the, the moments throughout to guide a conversation as well. And so I'll tell you what mine is and let you answer it. And then I'd like to know, you know, how you come up with those um, questions to jumpstart. But mine is, what are you endlessly curious about? Mm,
1: I love that. I love that. What are you endlessly curious about? You know, for me, I guess, is how to create environments of peace. Like, how do we do things differently? I am absolutely obsessed with not doing things the same way that everybody else in the world does it. And not to say like I need to be unique or creative as a way of separating myself is I feel like I want to bring something new to the world and I want to see the world differently. I want to understand the world differently. And partly is when we're trying to change or make a change or address a problem, we can't keep doing things the same way. Even if they yield some result in some way, um, I'm always like, could we do it differently? Could there be something different that we do? So for me, that's like the never ending question. I'm trying to always kind of challenge myself to think not just kind of outside the box, but like, I don't even want to know where the box is. Um, <laughs> not even like where I, you know, Yeah. so it is that. And part of it is also for me, right? Like I can get very stuck in, a way of thinking by the, you know my my own lived experience my own understanding of the world and i want i want something new and different i want to think differently mm. every day because it feels like i become a more connected person to everybody else's humanity not just my own
0: i love that wow have you always been this way
1: well i'm a middle child so <laughs> To some extent, um, by default or necessity, I think I've always tried to understand the world Mm -hmm. in a way that was growing up protective. Mm -hmm. So I was scanning, I'm paying attention, what's happening, what's going on. And that one kind of hoping mechanism as I was growing up became a skill that then has helped me be a better facilitator and has also helped me. It's just a constant, like I see the world through questions and curiosity more than, you know, anything else because that's how it's just how the mind was wired, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. I love that. You said you look at the world with questions and curiosity and one of the struggles that often happens when when people have that desire and that willingness to do that, you also have the expectations of society that says, you know, curiosity killed the cat, or how dare <laughs> you question me? And, and yeah. it creates this tension, this... Um, it it does create that powerful status quo that you're trying to get away from. And it draws you like a tractor beam almost. And I wonder how you've discovered to like break free from the tractor beam.
1: I think part of it is curiosity and critique are very different. And yet there's a fine line between the two of them, right? Like sometimes um, I have a very bad poker face when I'm in doing a presentation or listening to a presentation or something because somebody will say something and I'll be like, "Hmm," (laughs) you know, and it may look like judgment or like, Oh, you didn't like that. And really it's almost like I'm, you know, like when a dog tilts its head to hear something differently, like to hear it. And I'm like, did I hear you correctly? And part of it is like going through the mind, like, what is making you think that way what's making you like i want to understand a little bit better so i think there is a there's definitely a fine line between that idea of curiosity and critique and sometimes in curiosity when you're asking people huh why do you think that yeah right or explain to me tell me a little bit more about that we live in a society where we're constantly being judged every single day i mean you can't do anything without being judged uh, and so I think people's lens is always like, "Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Why are you questioning me?" Right. You know? So the the softness of understanding people is sometimes challenging. It it really is, and and approaching people in that way.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that comes back to the question of qu- questions that jumpstart conversation because. Mm. Uh, One of the best things that I saw was a woman who gave a TEDx talk about the shape of conversations. Mm. I think her name was Nancy Duarte. Okay. And it's like every great conversation has a shape. So she compared like the iPhone launch from Steve Jobs with Martin Luther King. I had a dream speech. And so she charts the shape of this conversation. And so like, I think about jumpstarting conversation that way. It's like, based upon the person that's in front of me, what is the potential shape of conversation that we're going to have? Like, are we going to dive into the deep stuff immediately or is it like a slow ramp up to, you know, what matters, you know? And so it's, and it's always surprising.
1: Yeah. I think for me, the, the jump starts to conversations are always through that lens of curiosity. And I want to know somebody like, I want to know, where did you grow up? What's your yeah. lived experience? What's what's the thing that excites you? What's the thing that challenges you, um, you know, what are you most excited to share? And I want to listen to that um, and be able to be engaged with that, you know, as a facilitator in that's what, that's what we do all the time. We have to constantly be able to like take in information process that information and then direct groups in a way that, you know, uses that and, and and comes to some understanding, agreement, conclusion, whatever it might be. So I am always asking people, like, where did you grow up? What's your experience? Um, what do you love the most? Like, I want to find the things that make them bring them joy before I ever find anything that challenges them. Mm -hmm. um i think if we can connect to each other's joy in some ways we can connect to each other and if we can share in that joy we can connect with each other
0: yeah i love that like it just makes me feel happy though like not (laughs) in a superficial way but just like you know the fact that there's people out here in this world that want to connect to people's joy there's something powerful in that
1: well i think it's Also this, like, just what you said, like at the end of the day, if we can connect people back to their own joy and joy and happiness are different for me. Mm -hmm. And they're different because happiness is a moment. It's a thing that happens externally. I'm happy because something, you know, out here happened and it, you know, somebody tells me a joke and I laugh and (laughs) I'm happy in that space. Joy is connected to a memory. It's a feeling. It's internal. It doesn't always look like laughing or smiling. It's this kind of feeling of contentment and just ever, you know, present in that space, which is why sometimes we cry when we experience joy. Like it's this unbelievable, unconditional feeling of peace and being in the moment and experiencing something. And I think if we have more, if we connect to more moments of joy in our lives, then we won't always be seeking happiness. And I had a a really smart friend one time tell me that life is hard and that pain is always going to be part of it. And if we are constantly trying to avoid that and, you know, kind of partition it from our lives, we'll never really experience joy and if we were always seeking happiness as the ultimate i have to be happy i need to be happy as opposed to just curating and collecting moments of joy Mm -hmm. that stay with us they're part of us right all the time that's the the secret sauce to life and i really you were we were talking before we came on around these like what influences us that really impacted me when I was like, oh, yeah, it's OK that life is hard. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's OK that I experience pain um, that actually connects me to my own humanity and who I am mm-hmm. as a human being and also helps me understand other people's pain and connects to their humanity, which I think is so central and something we have really gotten away from <laughs> in this world.
0: Yeah. What came up for me when you were saying that was in teams, often work environments, there's that desire to put a mask on, Mm. not connecting to joy. We're connecting to that artificial sense of this is who I need to be in order to survive in this environment. And I like this, this different approach of like connecting to each other's joy so that we can create better environments. And I imagine that's some of the most challenging work that you do.
1: Yeah, because, you know, part of it is about people, right? Like we interact, the ways in which we interact with each other. Part of it is, it is about the systems in which we have to operate as people. And in so many work environments, like let's, let's really kind of deconstruct it Modern work, the way we look at it, you know, are just work corporate, whether it's corporate or some even nonprofit schools, was designed for a very specific group of people, generally cisgender white males, right? And that's the dominant group that kind of set the rules, holds the power, right? Enforces those rules, not exclusively, but, you know, at times... So when we think about creating spaces where people can truly show up as themselves, it's not just the people that have to accept other people, but we have to think about the system, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it might be that you might say, I want to create more opportunities for people who use mobility devices, whether it's wheelchairs, walkers, whatever, in order to, um, you know, in our business. We want more folks. We're going to put out a massive campaign and bring in as many folks as we can and be as welcoming as possible. But you have the majority of your desks are standing desks. The um you know elevator that you have in your building doesn't really work all the time. It works sometimes, you know, and and goes down a lot. You have a annual, you know, company outing that's a 5k. There's all these structures that live around that we have to change in order to create spaces where people truly can just show up as themselves. I'm, this is me. This is who I want to be. And sometimes we're oddly connected to these structures that we are like, but why, (laughs) why can't you change that? And you're like, well, that's the way it's always been. And you're like, so, and that's that curiosity for me all the time. So, It could be better. Why couldn't you create something? It could be better. And it's when folks show up and they are able to be themselves, they actually are able to connect to that space in them that feels joy and connects to joy, which makes the working environment better, makes any environment better. Right. Yeah.
0: And I would imagine too that it transforms creativity from something that's performative to something that just becomes part of the experience of, you know, joyful people connecting with each other.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And also recognizing, you know, part of that is recognizing each other's challenge and pain. Yeah. We talk a lot about empathy, and we often think empathy is only in the moments when something really bad happens, you know? you you have a loss or something and you're I'm empathetic towards you or with you in that space. We actually think empathy should all should be experienced in moments of joy. Like it's sharing a feeling with someone and connecting to the emotion with someone, right? So when someone at your work succeeds, even if you are, you know, not succeeding at the way, the way that you want, but you see somebody, can you share in that with them? And when we show people that, sharing with them does not diminish you or make you feel bad about your, you know, struggle or challenge. It actually helps you connect in a way that builds us up and strengthens us and all of those things. Like that's really important
0: too. I'm a little blown away there by how you reframed empathy for me. Cause I just, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Like I, I often only hear that empathy is about, you know, being in other people's shoes when it comes to being down and out in life. and and I love that we can be empathetic when all of the other emotions people experience oh, it's it's
1: really easy to be empathetic to someone who has had something awful happen to them. Yeah, it's really hard to be empathetic to someone else's joy and success. Mm -hmm. If we are also not in a place where we are feeling joy or success and it is (laughs) a muscle that we absolutely have to continue to do because when we celebrate with others, we connect with others. You know, that's what we, that's what we want. We want to feel connected. I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything, we need each other. Like we, when we were ripped away from each other, even the introverts that I know and were like, <laughs> "I'm cool with this," ninety percent of the time, still felt like I also just miss being in community mm-hmm. because I miss my community. I miss the the people that I was connected to and that experience that I had. So when something really awesome happens, you look around and you're like, "There's nobody here." I want to share. We all want to share. We're social animals and we don't realize how much we want to be in community with other people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm flashing back to those moments during the pandemic where I'm like, yeah, this is nice and then I don't think it took long before I'm like, I need people. <laughs> right? We need
1: people. I mean from yeah. a, from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Like yeah. we as human beings as smart as we are, right? As we collectively need each other to stay we're not mighty powerful things. there are animals on the planet who could definitely take us down pretty quickly mm-hmm. but in in mass in numbers in the ways that we think that collective power that we have um, is what sustains us more than anything. And without that, like we we can't survive.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about you, Diana is that, you have an extensive background in sports. Yes. <laughs> coaching, and I th- think even performing too, like playing sports. And I'm curious what you learned in coaching and in your time in sports that translates to the business world and nonprofit world and just being a better human being.
1: Um, first, I want to say that your use of the term performing sport is. <laughs> And most people say playing, right? You you used to play, but I love the idea of like reframing that to think like you performed in it. It was truly a performance um, in some way. So I appreciate that. That is, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. Well, that was a Um, total
0: flub. So (laughs) I love
1: it. I absolutely love it because I think there's some real, point to that. Like we perform, you know, it's so interesting. I tell people all the time when they talk about sport and this is kind of responding to your question a little bit as well. Everybody is so obsessed with outcomes. We're so obsessed with winning and, you know, like, can we win? I mean, you know, we're pushing 10 year olds to get repetitive injuries because we're over training them because of this emphasis on winning and being the best and all of those types of things, and I think that what we fail to recognize is sport kind of is a performance in some ways that we don't do it by ourselves. It's not like we want to go play empty stadiums and we don't want people watching or cheering us on or selling us that we did a good job. Like it is a performance of sorts. And we should embrace that a little bit and understand like the it is not the outcome, but it's the process. Hmm. It's the in-between. that's so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I, every opportunity I've gotten in my life has come through some avenue or connection in sport from actually playing, coaching, having jobs in it to playing pickup basketball at, you know, a a local gym and meeting, uh, you know, folks who then gave me jobs or other opportunities through that, like every opportunity I've had. And yet I am probably sports biggest critic in some ways. And I mean that in the sense that this thing that I love so very, very much, I think sport is just an amazing, amazing tool. I also want it to be better. I want it to be better and I want it to be different. It was designed just as most things to exclude women, to exclude folks of color. It was designed in a way that was heavily focused um, in kind of, I'm going to use the term violence, but violence in a much broader structure other than just direct violence in the systemic structural cultural type. And we, when I think about, that's where coaching peace was the title of my master's thesis. So like when I think about coaching peace, I think about coaching, using coaching and using sport as a way to create just, what we we're talking about moments of joy connection. It doesn't take away the competition of sport and the absolute like pursuit of a victory pursuit of success, all of those things that I think are really important and just, Think we need we've tipped the scale so much in that way that we've lost a lot of what is so unbelievably awesome about sport. And the the question you asked, like, what are the things that we learn? I think we learn, number one, communication. Really effective sport teams have to understand each other and communicate on a variety of different levels. Um, I was a point guard when I played basketball. My you know, to post players, you know, because that's where I was dishing balls a lot too. Is we didn't even have to speak at times, right? Like we had a nonverbal communication because we knew each other. Yeah. We knew what our roles were. We understood our roles. We felt good in our roles. We were, you know, there was this kind of like nonverbal relationship as well as verbal. We built these connections so that when the stakes were high or we were under pressure, we felt a sense of trust with each other that we could just operate, right? Well, we want that in anything that we do, not just in sport. Like we want to build that trust. That takes time. That takes effort, energy. My high school basketball coach, uh, one time we walked into the the locker room before a game and all she had on the board was the words, um, adjust to adversity. And it stuck with me, you know, I'm 50 years old now, that's like 30 some odd years. And it stuck with me because that's what sport has always taught me is to adjust to the adversity, to be like, okay, there are things I can change and there are things I cannot change. How do I move or shake or change this, you know, certain aspects of things to adjust to the adversity that I'm experiencing in times? Well, that's, you know, that's what companies say, fail forward. And, you know, they use all these terms. That's really what it kind of is. It's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I'm skiing down a mountain. There's a tree in front of me. I can't move the tree. That's not going to happen. What do I do to move around the tree? How do I better select my path so that I don't encounter that again? How do I use my teammates or, you know, the, 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 the folks around me to actually inform me about the tree that's coming in? That's the thing that sport has taught more than anything. It's also taught me to listen to my body. And we are so disconnected from our bodies that oftentimes, even I'll experience it. Someone will be like, where do you feel that? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I feel it here. Right. You know, but When we are in sport, right, we experience pain, we have injury, we have fatigue. We are constantly getting signals from our body. And sometimes now we're training athletes to not listen to that, to overcome it, as opposed to being in tune to it and saying like, oh, my body's telling me I'm a little tired right now. I need to refuel, I need to take a breath. I need to rest for a moment. I'm injured. That pain is telling me that that injury means like I need to heal. Well, I feel like we've disconnected ourselves from our bodies so much. Why can't we begin to listen to that? So when people are like, I'm so burned out, I want to say you were, your body was telling you that six months ago, <laughs> there were all these signs that it was telling you. And we're, we're conditioned to be like, I can't. I can't, there's no way we don't have PTO. I don't have time I'm. how do we begin to check back in with ourselves? So like when we do workshops, we incorporate play and physical movement mm. and inclusive physical movement, right? Like, so we make sure that I, whatever you, however you show up, we're not going to make an accommodation. We've actually made activities so that you could participate fully no matter what. But we want to make sure that people are connecting back to their bodies, that they're feeling, they understand themselves. Because we are full, complete human beings. We're not just in our heads. We're in our hearts, you know, we're in our our muscles, our tendons, all of those
0: things. I love that phrase, adjust to adversity. And I also love what you said about coaching peace, that Mm. trying to counterbalance, you know, the emphasis on, you know, violence. And I'm curious yeah. how peace changes the response to adversity, because when I think of adjusting to adversity, Ooh. sometimes we're like flailing our arms against the heavens going, ah, you know, that's how we respond sometimes to adversity, or at least that's just me. But <laughs> but what does it look like to respond to adjust to adversity with, through a lens, through peace? Oh, that's a...
1: It's a really interesting question. I don't know if I have a, a an entirely complete answer yet, but I want to, I'll verbally process through this that's as we great. go through. I think that's the best thing the, for me. <laughs> right. I think the first thing to think about is how you define peace, right? Like as an individual. And I have my own kind of definitions of what that might be, but that doesn't, you know, I, I, I never tell anybody that my ideas should be the ideas that you take. When I think about peace, I think about it in this kind of place of unconditional safety, right? So I'm sitting in a place where I know there's no, you know, like I'm safe because the door's shut or I'm safe because no one knows I'm here that that feels like a conditional safety to me. Peace is this place of unconditional safety where you are just able to breathe and and be in that space. So when I think about your question around, like how do we kind of navigate that? I always think about like, how do I, how do I get to that place? before I even begin to try to, you know, approach what's happening. Wh- what do I need to do to get to that place? Because that's the space where I can take a breath, where I can truly connect, where my brain isn't firing in a way that's like, I'm either trying to over-process something or I am in a place where, you know, I'm in that fight or flight freeze. Like I'm, I got to do something. I've got to, you know, take an action, I want to get to a place where I truly can see something that's happening. And I, you know, have to constantly, when I was younger, I was so reactive. Mm -hmm. You know, everything was like, I'm going to, I'm going to address this. Uh, You know, when I coached basketball, ironically, I must've led the league in technical fouls, you know, in technicals, (laughs) like from, because not as a player, but as a coach, because I was immediately i saw an injustice that would happen on and i had to respond to it <laughs> and i really had to be like wait a second take a breath see what's actually happening pay attention to what's happening and you know kind of calculate those responses a little bit better mm-hmm. uh so i think it's that place of like getting to a place of peace before you do anything or react to anything. And and peace is different for everybody. Yeah. Right? Like that's
0: you define it. I just had this flash of of like my peace journey. It's really interesting. I, I hope it's interesting to you. It's interesting to me. <laughs> but like um when I was younger probably early 20s I was really into racquetball. And I played all the time. Like I played every night and I played hard. Like I was, I I would like leap. I would like slide. I would like slam into the wall. And it's, it, it's very 1980s of you. Oh yeah. It was. Yeah. Like I had bleach blonde hair. All I had hair, you know, but it's just like, <laughs> I, I, I was intense. And when I lost or missed the ball, my, I bought so many rackets cause I would just bang the racket on the wall and just scream like very John McEnroe of me and just like slam, (laughs) just like looking back, you know, 20 years later, I'm kind of shocked because I'm not that same person over the 20 years since then I've learned to be at peace and be less reactive and, and that dissonance between where I've been and where I am sometimes is hard to deal with um, because I'm just kind of like, yeah. there because there's parts of that that are really useful today. Like the yeah. tenacity, that drive isn't the same. Um, so it's like the balance is forever kind of trying to find the right position between that drive and that piece. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: What's the thing? So I, I'm curious as to the, when you say that kind of dissonance that like yeah. you look back and that's like some, what's, what's hard. What is, what's the, the critic in your head or the narrator in your head saying about, yeah. you know, that experience for you?
0: I think it was more to do with, I wanted to win. I wanted to be my best. Like I obsessed over how to serve the ball. And so like for me, the, you could win in the serve. And so, you know, (laughs) these guys would give me VHS tapes. I mean, this was, this is only the early two thousands, but we, there, we were passing VHS tapes on how to like serve the ball and how to like how to maneuver your body in such a way that you crush the ball and, and you know it when you hear it, that kind of thing. And I don't know if I approach what I do now with that level of scrutiny and intensity at that obsession level, I think. And that's where the dissonance comes from. It's like, is it bad that I'm not as obsessed to that singular point of, you know, obsessing over the way my body follows through as I serve this ball. I I think that's where the dissonance comes from. The obsession.
1: Exactly. And we live in kind of a culture where the pursuit of excellence is always at any cost. Mm So the end that that gets celebrated and rewarded um, you know, you think back to Carrie Shrugg and the, um, wow. you know, like she will even say like, that was, that was unbelievably painful, like that was, you know, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't love that experience. I didn't, the, the weight that she puts on that success, right. From things that I've heard, you think about like the ways in which we reward and celebrate the obsession at any cost to ourselves is really important to pay attention to that. We don't create, you know, peace to us also means balance. And balance is like, I am good enough right now. And if you say that to any athlete, like you're good enough, (laughs) you know, they'd be like, Whoa, wait a second. Hold up. And it doesn't mean you're good enough that you stop, but like, it's good enough right now. You can take a break if you need to, you can take a step back because when you create that balance, right. That then what happens is you give yourself more. Every time you come back, you're like, Oh, I've got a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I come back. I get a little bit more. But what we do is we're here all the time. And then we crash. And then something happens and we can't recover because we've never been training ourselves to recover. There's no recovery in a a process where we drive all the time. And that's the kind of sense of peace that we want to find with folks. Like we don't like we being coaching peace. We don't like the term work-life balance at all. (laughs) No. And we don't like it because what it says that those are the kind of the only two things that they don't exist together in Mm -hmm. any way. And we always talk about balance, right? And balance looks like this, not like this. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is I, you know, I'm a run my own business. I'm a consultant. We have things that are going on all the time. There are days that I have to work 12 hour days, right? 15 hour days. There are weeks sometimes that are really busy. So, when the other weeks that aren't busy, I sometimes don't work at all. I'll be like, I'm not, I'm not working these four <laughs> days. I'm not working this afternoon. Right. And that is because for me, that's kind of a balance. I am giving the times when I have to push really, really, really hard. I'm saving that energy so that I am fully present and fully engaged when you need me in that space. And then I'm pulling back to take care of myself. And experience the things that bring me the most joy, but then I'm never overly stressed in any way or wholly bored. <laughs> it's <just> balance between <laughs> the two. How do we create that relationship as opposed to necessarily just this kind of flat line of what it what you know balance looks like? I think I went off way more than your question. Oh, no, that
0: was perfect, though, because what what it brought up is like we often take the individual approach of like, you know, we do so much and then we fall off, but we don't think about the people around us who are in their own balancing state. So you as a facilitator, as, as a coach coming into these organizations, you get to see where everyone's at and how they're... The journeys of balance affect one another and either, you know, help the organization thrive or tank it.
1: Absolutely. You know, and, and I understand too, when we work walk, work with organizations, like people say, well, I pay somebody to do a job. I don't pay for them to rest. Mm. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. And for them to do that best job that they can, you have to provide those moments of rest You know, there are a lot of um, words that came out of the pandemic that I absolutely never want to hear again. One is unprecedented. I don't like that word. Um, Everything was, we didn't even know what unprecedented was until we came into unprecedented times (laughs) and then everything became unprecedented. I'm waiting for precedented. And then pivot. (laughs) I'm tired. Even as a basketball player, I'm tired of pivoting. We're not pivoting anymore. That's it. We're just, you know, and self-care. Because I feel like what we did was a really big injustice to folks when we started telling people, especially during the pandemic, how much self-care was important. Mm -hmm. And it was the great gaslighting of, you know, our society, because we would say you should engage in self-care. And yet the system that you operate in didn't afford you any time to actually do that in an effective way. So we were shaming people for not caring for themselves while, you know, kind of like on the other side, having having them operate in a system that would never have allowed for that, right? So we teach organizations to create communities of care, right? To create a culture of care. If I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, exercising every day, And my partner was like, that's great. I know you want to go out running every day, but I don't like sneakers and I'm throwing away every sneaker that you have ever owned. And, you know, like, that's just the way it is. It doesn't matter what I don't live or in an environment and a culture where they're, they support my ability to take care of myself. How do we create environments where people truly support other people's ability to care for themselves without shaming them for it. The amount of times I hear from employers or managers that we, you know, have worked with and they'll say things like, well, you know, they're constantly wanting time off. You know, you're like if your people are wanting time off constantly, they are telling you we are, we're, we're completely burned out. Yeah. Like your system is broken. And as much as you don't want to understand that, you have to fix your system. Mm-hmm. And when you fix that and you create a different environment and culture and ecosystem in which they operate, people will, we generally as human beings want to, are driven by purpose and meaning. And we want to feel like our work matters and that we, we contribute. And we actually will work hard and put effort in if we have energy and space and a connection to that purpose in doing that, right? No one is inherently lazy. I hate that word anyway, but like no one is inherently like, I don't want to work type thing. People want to actually do things. How do we find and create that inspiration so that they actually want to be engaged in things? And we're just burning people out like at at record numbers.
0: So with communities of care, is that the response to changing systems? Is that how we change systems? Or is that something entirely different?
1: So I think there's things that have to happen concurrently, right? So number one, when we change a system, right, we have to actually like understand what's happening in the system. Most systems operate covertly, not overtly. <laughs> So we have to actually identify what's happening in that system. So when we go into an organization, nobody brings us in for a one and done training. That doesn't happen Um, because we feel like we don't know you, we don't understand you, we don't know what's going on. Sometimes we come in and we'll do three, four month audits on organizations to really understand who they are and what's happening so that we meet you where you're at and we begin to help you understand your process where you're at, right? So part of it is like knowing what's happening and making, you know, what is, what is hidden visible Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, shining a light and saying, Hey, do you know that this is happening? Do you understand why this is happening? Then we can begin to address that. And we can start to change the systems, policies, practices, rituals, routines within that organization, but then address some of that stuff. Part of it also has to be with the people. So I need to be able to change. Now, part of that change will happen inherently when the system changes. When the system within I'm in, sometimes I'll rail against that. That in and of itself might drive some change. Sometimes it'll elicit things or bring things to my attention that I didn't know about. And I'll say, "Hmm, that's, you know, there, but there has to be a willingness to reflect and say, oh, wait a second. I've perpetuated this. I've contributed to this. I need to think about how I do things differently. And part of it is that we help people see and understand that. Part of it is also we walk them through that process and say, "Okay, you're there. Let's do that. Let's do that work. Let's reflect. Let's pay attention. Let's be conscious about it. And that's hard because we live, especially in the work environment, if you admit that there's something you don't know, or that you maybe have been doing that is, is, you know, perpetuating racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, if you're like, oh gosh, like I need to change that being transparent about that, we always feel like we're going to lose our job. We're going to lose our, you know, connection. We're going to, because we live in such a judgmental society that It's hard for people to bring awareness to themselves and say, like, I need to change. I need to do something differently. And that's what that community of care comes in. I wish we would kind of live in spaces where people could say, like, hey, I need to actually I didn't do that right, especially as managers like, oh, I wasn't I didn't do that right. I need to do that differently thank you for your feedback. I appreciate that. How do I repair that harm? How do I make sure that harm doesn't happen again? What do I need to do to actually make a change so that I am not perpetuating this over and over again? What a great world we would live in if we could actually do that you know, without being so defensive all the
0: time. I love what you just said. Wow. How did you learn for yourself not to be so defensive?
1: Oh, I'm not sure I have entirely. So, please don't don't put me on a, on a pedestal. I think what I've learned is not necessarily how not to be, but I've I have learned why I am, and I have learned how to identify the moments when that's happening, and I've learned to, in those moments, number one, not speak, to just listen. And to ask myself questions, there are moments when I will hear somebody say something or I'll see something and I will immediately get even, even if they're not words, I'll get a visceral feeling around it. And I like intentionally have to stop myself and say, why do you feel this way? Mm -hmm. What information do you have that is, that is driving this feeling? And that's really hard. And sometimes you can be outside your body and watch yourself in this. You're like, why am I saying this? Why am I doing this? You know, and you still can't stop it. And that's the thing that is just about constantly interrupting ourselves and saying, like, hold up. Don't do that. Listen, take a breath, get back, pay attention, listen to what people are saying. You know, I had a young man, like he was in, I think, seventh grade, eighth grade. I was doing a workshop like almost 20 years ago. And I know that we use the term kind of listen to understand all the time as opposed to listen to respond. And this young kid was coming in and I said, you know, we were doing a workshop and I was like, what are the ground rules that we want to have here? What are the learning agreements that we have? And, you know, be respectful, kind, whatever. And he said, we should all put our earphones in when people are talking. And I was like, that sounds disrespectful. I was like, uh, I don't know if that's exactly what you mean. And I was about to kind of like chastise him for something that wasn't. And he was like, no, he's like, I mean, kind of metaphorically, like when someone's speaking, put your headphones in and just listen to them. Mm -hmm. And you can't, when you have your headphones in, you can't always hear yourself. Right. So like, and I was like, come on, are you like, why are they all smarter than me? And and it was like, why is every kid so much smarter? But I was, that stayed with me. Like, just be here, be in this moment with this person in this experience, listen to them. Yeah, It's sometimes we can empathize with someone without endorsing them, right? Or their behavior. There are several folks that I do not like absolutely do not agree with the ways in which they view the world at all. And yet in order for me to truly change the world in a, in a way that like invites people in, I have to understand. And to some extent to understand, I also have to have some empathy, which means I understand their emotion that they might be experiencing but I don't endorse their behavior or their beliefs, um, at all. And that's hard for us because we want to, we want to just push away all the things, but we can't push away, you know, everybody in the world that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. We have to listen and create community and create connection at times. That doesn't mean that we have to do that when people are kind of perpetuating violence against us in any way, not at all those are the moments when we can be like, no, you need to be over there. Like that is, that's, that's completely different. Whether that violence is through kind of systemic means or, you know, direct means. But I do think in the, in the space between those, those kind of like, you know, moments when it's not so polarized, but we're kind of in this, like in the muck of it, creating opportunities to actually like put your headphones on, listen to what somebody's saying, try to understand them often creates an entry point to begin to humanize each other and connect to each other's humanity. We we're all interconnected and we have to figure out a way to coexist and it's really important to find that you know that space between. Ooh,
0: I love that. Well, you've shared so much incredible wisdom in this conversation. As we wrap up our time together, what's what's something you want to leave with the listener?
1: For us, if anything, I'd love folks to think about like what peace means to them and define it. Um, and I'd love to hear from folks. And all, all honesty, like like what does that mean? Like, you know, I've as we've been having this conversation, I've been thinking more and more. Like, I wonder what what peace means to people. Other than us, um, you know, and in, in the way we define it. So I would love to, to hear from folks and actually get people to really begin to think about, like, what does that mean for me? What would it look like? We used to say that that peace was the absence of war and peace is not the absence. They're not two sides of a coin by any means. And I'd be curious to know how people define that.
0: Well, last question for you. What book, podcast, or resource is blowing your mind right now?
1: Um, so I am reading a book that I have it on my desk right here. That's it's called Making Peace Last. Mm. And that has been, um, it's kind of like a real deconstruction of understanding what peace is and why we don't have world peace, so to speak, as we define it. And it's been really fascinating to read that understanding how we're all in many ways doing tremendous work to achieve better spaces, environments and safety and belonging, but that if we worked together, it would be, you know, we'd be unstoppable. Um, But because we, even in the spaces of good, don't necessarily always connect with each other, you know, we're, it's, it's this, this, like we're just, we're not really getting anywhere. um And we're constantly having to, to recreate, you know, every single, every single time. Like how do we, how do we work together better to achieve the outcomes that we want to do that?
0: I hope this conversation with Diana inspires you to take some time and define what peace means to you, what it means to your work and the life that you want to live. I love that Diana said that peace is a place of unconditional safety. But what does it mean to create a space of unconditional safety for you? So many fabulous and deep questions. I encourage you to get out a journal and maybe write some answers down and grab a coffee with a friend and talk about these questions. Explore what these answers could be. Learn to listen to what someone else is saying so that you can then hear what's going on inside you as well. You might just be surprised. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.